morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the July 13th edition of Global Dialogue, the international affairs program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan, uh, TENWAC president. This evening, we have a special program for you. Uh, two distinguished scholars who are experts on Russia and its relationships with the world. Uh, this evening, we welcome Dr. Andrea Korobkov and Dr. Mark Katz. Welcome, uh, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, first, let me uh, start by acknowledging the support of our sponsors, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, International Business Committee, and the Center for International Business at Belmont University. Today, we're also pleased to welcome the Peoria Area World Affairs Council, a special partner of ours from our network of World Affairs Council uh, sisters and our friends from Illinois. Today, we have a special episode of our Global Dialogue series, What's Ahead in the U.S.-Russia Relationship After the Biden-Putin Summit. When the United States President Joe Biden and Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin met in, Russia, in uh, Geneva on June 16th, there was an icy cast on prospects for positive results. Yet, Mr. Biden said he did what he came to do. That seemed to have been to put Putin on notice concerning cyber attacks on American systems, human rights and oppression of Russian opposition, provocative military moves against neighbors like the Ukraine, and observance of international norms of behavior. Going into the summit, the US and Russia were deeply at odds over these and other sources of conflict. Beyond the leaders' press conferences and officials' talk show appearances, there's much more to dissect and understand on what the Washington-Moscow relationship is going to look like. To better understand this important foreign policy challenge for the United States, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is pleased to have this conversation this evening with Dr. Andrei Korobkov and Dr. Mark Katz. Dr. Korobkov is Professor and Director of Russian Studies in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, Middle Tennessee State University. He focuses his scholarship on post-Soviet Russia and Eastern Europe. Dr. Katz, a familiar friend of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, uh, who was here just last, well, two months ago. Uh, he is a professor in the Shore School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. He has lectured and written extensively on Moscow's foreign policy. Please take a look at their complete bios on our event page at tnwac.org. And uh, you can also find information about them at the MTSU and George Mason uh, University websites. They are eminent scholars in international politics, and we are very fortunate to have them with us tonight. We'll start with opening comments and a conversation and then open the floor to your questions. Please start at any time with questions in the Zoom Q&A tab, not the chat section. And your moderator welcomes short questions. Let's get started. We had a, a little bit of uh, interruption uh, getting everybody into the program, but we're all here now. Uh, uh, Dr. Katz and uh, Dr. Korobkov, thank you so much for being with us uh, this evening. Um, I'd like to start by uh, asking uh, uh, Andre if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the, the background leading into the Geneva summit. Uh, President Joe Biden was in office less than six months when he agreed to uh, uh, the summit with President Putin. Uh, can you set the background of uh, events leading up to the Geneva summit? What was, what was the context of, uh, of the meeting um, that uh, we saw play out 
uh, last month? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, and uh, uh, whether one is a Republican or a Democrat, uh, one thing that uh, one cannot deny Biden is uh, tremendous experience that he has. And uh, uh, Biden uh, knows very well how to play uh, this game. Uh, he knows, uh, well, all uh, gains and uh, losses that American presidents have incurred as a result of meetings with the Soviet leaders and then Russian leaders. And uh, thus he started preparation from the very first day. He positions himself as a, a kind of staunch opponent of Putin. He uses uh, some personal insults. Uh, he shows that he is tough on Russia as uh, before it was necessary to show that uh, one is tough on uh, the commies. And then he starts offering uh, some cooperation and pretty soon he uh, offers uh, a meeting. Uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, typical if we look at the previous uh, history of US-Russian relations, uh, presidents who were engaging in direct conversations relatively easily, relatively quickly were Eisenhower, Nixon, uh, Reagan, so staunch Republicans who uh, were not afraid uh, to be uh, accused of, say, being too soft on the Reds. Uh, on the other side, vice versa, Johnson, who was promoting probably the most liberal reforms internally in the United States, and knew that he had to deal with sponsors in regard to Vietnam War uh, with uh, the Soviets and with the Chinese. He has met with the Soviet leader only once, and it was a very low-key meeting in, in New Jersey, uh, and uh, it was with Kasigan, not, not the even number uh, one, really, uh, within this five-and-a-half-year period. And thus, uh, while well, Biden starts uh, such preparatory work, uh, not only in regard to uh, Russia, but also in regard to China. We know about Blinken's shouting match with the Chinese in Alaska, and it was also typical. And then uh, Biden goes on a long tour to Europe. He meets with European leaders. He meets with EU leaders, with uh, NATO leaders, and then uh, he meets with Putin. Uh, so he uh, prepared very well, and uh, uh, for him, it still was relatively risky in contrast to Putin. For Putin, it was, again, under any circumstances. Just, uh, just the fact that he is offered to meet as equals was already a very positive development for him. For Biden, it was riskier, but basically there were three blocks of issues they had to deal with. First, issues on which they could really agree uh, finds, uh, well, some common grounds and uh, engage in uh, further talks. This involved first uh, the climate talks, and we know that Kerry just uh, talked to Lavrov, uh, the pandemic issues, something easy, easy to agree on something, uh, and, uh, uh, well, uh, disarmament of two kinds, preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons and mutual talks about, uh, well, some new control measures. So this was an easy part. Uh, a more complicated block was the second one, when there was understanding that there are common challenges, but the approaches could be very different. This included the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. This uh, uh, included uh, the situation in the Arctic, 
and the dietic situation basically consists of four blocks. First, uh, the quickly uh, developing competition in regard to uh, the new arms race first. Second, uh, the uh, development of new, uh, well, transportation roads uh, due to also to global uh, warming. Uh, third, uh, competition uh, in terms of control of uh, resources of the Northern Ocean. And fourth, the issue of China. Uh, and China in general is uh, present in the room whenever now Putin and Biden talk and will talk. And we see it uh, now, for example, in Ukraine, in Central Asia and Afghanistan and in the Arctic as well. Uh, there were some other issues. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned, it's situation in Central Asia. It's uh, uh, the uh, situation in regard to hacker attacks and uh, very different views on that issue from Biden and from Putin. Putin just uh, announced that, well, there were more attacks coming from the US against Russian, uh, well, uh, legal entities than against uh, American entities coming uh, from Russia. So they uh, recognize the existence of a problem, but they have very different approaches. And the general issue of China. So the issue that borders both countries, even though they have very different uh, also views in regard to what happens. And then there's the third block that uh, either, uh, well, they agree that there is a problem, but their views are uh, totally opposite ones or the issues that Biden knew that he couldn't get any positive response, but he had to raise them for foreign and internal political reasons. It's the, uh, well, US elections and uh, Russian interference. It's the Russian elections and the treatment of opposition. It's the situation in Ukraine uh, and uh, in a number of other countries, for example, Moldova, Armenia, uh, in general situation in the Caucasus uh, and a, a number of others. So mm, that's how basically they play the, there are issues on which they can agree and continue negotiations. There are issues on which they uh, really want to find a solution, but uh, there is a serious difference among them. Besides those that I mentioned, it's uh, for example, Syria, Libya, a number of other hotspots in the Middle East. And there are issues on which progress is totally, uh, well, impossible at this point, but Biden had to raise them uh, sometimes for really foreign policy considerations and sometimes for internal consumption because, well, he had to say that I raised these issues. And of course, there was uh, uh, no response or no positive response on the Russian part. And then there the were uh, less uh, global but important issues. These are the issues of two uh, American former Marines uh, who received lengthy prison terms in Russia, Russian attempts to exchange them uh, to a number of uh, uh, Russian citizens sitting in American prisons. One of them is Victor Boot, uh, well, the arms uh, trader, Another one is uh, uh, a pilot who was delivering, among other things, these, uh, well, such weapons to uh, the hotspots all over the world, Yeroshenko. And uh, at least for now, there were no announcements. So my guess is uh, they still uh, could not agree on the terms 
uh, and the U.S. was just the re release of Americans, Putin, uh, well, categorically, uh, well, insists on exchanges. Uh, and some other issues like Belarus, of course, and uh, well, Putin took a very, uh, well, strict, uh, uh, well, view on this uh, point and, well, gave uh, Lukashenko strong support in exchange for some cuts uh, in Belarusian sovereignty. So um, picture, uh, picture is mixed, uh, but uh, I would repeat it again, Biden played it by the book. He knew how to do it, first of all, for the internal consumption and to avoid being attacked uh, by his opponents. Well, that's, uh, uh, Andre, that's quite a uh, comprehensive overview of uh, leading up to uh, the summit. I think uh, you have uh, buttoned down every, uh, every conceivable aspect of what went into uh, the conversations. And uh, it's difficult to imagine how in just two or three hours they were able to uh, cover uh, that much ground. But uh, I, I guess uh, if there's not a lot of agreement on some of these issues, it's, it's easy enough to raise them and move on to the next item on the checklist. Uh, Professor Katz, um, the lead up to the summit was an extended uh, tour of Europe uh, for President Biden in which uh, he met for multilateral and bilateral uh, meetings and summits with uh, European partners, uh, NATO, there was the, uh, the G7 meeting uh, in Wales. He uh, spent time with, uh, with the British. Uh, he spent time with uh, President Macron. Uh, there were uh, lots of consultations and uh, agreeing that the United States was back in, in Biden's words. Uh, what, uh, what do you think that this, this European launching pad uh, did for uh, Biden leading into the summit? Well, I think that uh, uh, the message was that you know he met with the European allies uh, extensively, and of course first, and there was before meeting with Putin. In other words, that the priority is uh, Biden wanted to set was on restoring the relationship with America's European allies, and uh, I think he's he's done that. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, sort of hitting all the bases, you know, the G7, NATO, you know, EU, you know, talking with the British, talking with the French, uh, you know, very, very important. Of course, now we have you know, Angela Merkel in Washington. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, that 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 was the priority. And then, of course, you know, meeting with the Russians, obviously, this is something that I think that the, you know, the allies want <laughs> for the, you know, for a, a sort of you know, normal American president to work with uh, with Putin. In other words, that that working with Putin is not you know, something they have to do themselves. And I think that they were very nervous, you know, when it came to Trump being both highly critical of NATO as well as of the uh, uh, allies, allied governments individually, but seemed to be very friendly toward Putin. This was something that they made them very nervous. And I think that Biden has returned to sort of a more normal American approach where we express uh, appreciation for our allies and we 
you know, sort of have you know, tough negotiations, but but working relations uh, with the Russians. So I think he 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 did a pretty good job. And as you mentioned, Pat, uh, you know, Biden has just an extraordinary amount of uh, foreign policy uh, experience and expertise. You know, going over the past decades, probably you know, I can't think of an American president who's been who's better prepared to deal with foreign policy than someone with his experience. Well, to be sure, um, I think uh, you're you're 100 right, and, and uh, Andre, uh, that was uh, um, a very good comment to to lead into the conversation about uh, experience. And on the other side, uh, President Putin, uh, what what would you, how would you characterize his preparation for being on the stage uh, in in such a meeting? He's had other meetings with with other American presidents. Uh, Famously, the Helsinki meeting with President Trump, uh, but he's also met with uh, President Bush and President Obama uh, and others. So, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, President Biden being prepared by his experience. Uh, how about President Putin? What, uh, by his professional training and experiences, uh, prepares him for this this kind of stage? Uh, well, I don't know. I can continue, Mark, if you have something to say then if not then uh well what can i say uh, an interesting kind of comical detail uh putin uh, is always late uh, he was late 45 minutes to a meeting with trump the way cases when he was late four hours to international meetings and biden made sure that uh, this time he would late that he would show up later than putin and Putin had to wait, and it's very unusual. So uh, clearly, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to detail during this meeting. And uh, uh, well, Putin and Biden have met before. Uh, there was nothing, uh, well, unexpected for them. But you have to remember that Putin in his uh, uh, first life, uh, first reincarnation, he was uh, um, a recruiter. He was recruiting informers uh, for secret police, uh, and uh, he is considered to be a very good reader of, uh, well, uh, faces and personalities. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that he also uh, paid attention to uh, these details as well. Uh, in this sense, I think that uh, country to everything that was written in the last five years, uh, Trump was not a highly desirable partner for Putin because he was totally unpredictable. He did not follow any professional or psychological patterns. Uh, and Biden in this sense, vice versa, besides being in the public eye for a very long time, he is a classical uh, politician and uh, Putin probably could have more or less uh, expected what, what would happen. But uh, as we already have mentioned a couple of times during our conversation, uh, well, uh, Biden came uh, to this meeting as a part of a package. So he talked to G7, he talked to individual European leaders, then to NATO leaders, to the EU leaders. And uh, essentially, uh, Biden made two very important changes in the US foreign policy, uh, not related to Russia directly. The first of these changes was that he essentially has pushed Europeans to adopt a resolution uh, declaring China to be a serious threat. 
and this signified that uh, while uh, disagreeing with Trump's style, he genuinely accepted the uh, most important postulate of uh, foreign policy of the previous four years. And that's the idea that the center of the world political system is moving from North Atlantic, where it was for 500 years since the start of the European expansion, uh, well, until quite recently. And that means that China becomes uh, the uh, state challenging the US position in the world. And uh, the center of the world system uh, well, moves to uh, the North Pacific. And this uh, uh, geostrategically, of course, changes the overall balance. Europe, uh, that was the center of the system for all these years, first as a center of real political power, then the center of contact and conflict of two blocks, while losing is losing its central position in the system. And of course, it changes its geopolitical uh, uh, value. If Trump was openly saying Europeans, well, you know what, uh, guys, well, you are not at the center anymore and you are losing your economic military with its political power. And therefore, yeah, we'll protect you, but you have to pay for it first. And second, we'll treat you as client states, not as partners. Well, Biden uh, told Europeans, no, guys, well, you are partners again. But by the way, uh, well, not all partners are equal. Some are more equal than the others. And it was very clear uh, when uh, he sent a signal in regard to, uh, well, the uh, Nordstrom, uh, the, uh, well, uh, second line of the Russian pipeline, a very uh, clear, well, sign, uh, mostly directed to, towards Germany, not Russia in reality, showing how important Germany was for the United States. Similar kind of gesture towards the, uh, well, French government and French president. And respectively, what does it mean that uh, the US has allowed now to, uh, well, finish the construction of this pipeline? Uh, two uh, lines uh, of that pipeline will be able to carry more than 80% of the Russian natural gas to Europe. That makes not only Ukraine, but also uh, Belarus, Poland, Baltic states totally irrelevant for Germany and other major European countries as uh, supply routes for the Russian gas and potentially oil. It uh, tremendously diminishes their political uh, well, uh, leverage within the major European institutions and first of all towards uh, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, uh, well, uh, France, Italy. And uh, uh, th this is uh, not only um, economically motivated decision, it's first of all politically motivated decision. And uh, uh, it basically has shown Europeans that yes, we recognize that the center of power is uh, living Europe and respectively, even Russia is becoming, yeah, it's a, it's a serious threat, but it is not the threat anymore. And respectively countries bordering on Russia are important, but not as important as before. And uh, of course, this is a kind of political gesture with tremendous geopolitical consequences for the future.
Well, that's, uh, that's excellent uh, points to consider. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the geostrategic shift uh, to the North Pacific. Uh, Mark, can you can you pick up on that point? What, what about Russia and China? Where where should we be looking at that relationship going, and uh, where does the U.S. fit in on uh, on the situation? Or uh, is somebody playing one card or another against a, a third? But I think that the Russian-Chinese relationship is pretty strong at this point. Uh, in other words, whatever, whatever you know, sort of uh, hopes that somehow we could sort of separate Russia from China, or, or you know, that Russia, if we're worried about China, Russia must also be worried about it. Uh, I think a lot of individual Russians are, uh, but I believe that uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, the relationship with Xi Jinping, is very strong, and I think that. You know, whereas you know, whatever the rise of China portends, one thing it does not pretend uh, is for uh, the democratization of Russia. In other words, that you know, whereas Putin sees the West as, you know, especially the United States, as pushing for for this for color revolution, etc. You know, China you know may eventually be a you know, conventional threat, but it's not a, a threat to the, the Putin system, that's for sure. Uh, and I think that basically, I think what the Russians and Chinese feel is that so long as each uh, sees the U.S. as its main adversary, they're not going to turn seriously against each other. There are some differences, that's for sure, and there's certainly a lot of, you know, uh, irritants, uh, uh, but I think that uh, uh, these are pretty tough regimes that are sort of, <laughs> they're, they're used to not agreeing completely with their partners. <laughs> and so I think that we're going to see this going through. Now, you know, I think one of the things you uh, mentioned was obviously the, um, you know, the, the Biden was able to get, uh, you know, the Europeans to sort of join the U.S. in declaring the U.S. an adversary. And I think this is still pretty controversial in Europe. I think that for a lot of Europeans, actually was on a Zoom this morning uh, you know, with German scholars, and that uh, they see China mainly as a market, uh, you know, uh, and they also see that, to, you know, that Russia uh, has some, to, to some extent, threatened security in, in Europe, but that China does not. China, uh, they simply don't see it as a, as a military threat. And, and what they worry about is that the U.S. doing so, what this means is that the U.S. is turning its attention away from Europe, away from NATO, and that's something that they're, they're not too happy about. So in a certain sense, you know, the, the Europeans, they don't want to see this American turn toward uh, fo focus on China go too far, that in a certain sense that they, they would they want to see, you know, please continue to worry about the Russians because that obviously keeps the Americans interested in in Europe. Uh, now, you know, what will happen eventually? Certainly, you know, a lot of younger Russians feel that, you know, at, at some point, you know, if the trend continues the way it is, um, that China will just grow stronger than Russia. Uh, and that at some point it, it will be a problem. And then is, is you know, is the Russian strategy either of Putin or some future leaders that, you know, if and when China becomes a threat to Russia, it will be a threat to the United States and the West and that they'll have to sort of forgive all past difficulties and work together against the common threat when it's time to do so. Uh, and certainly I think that the Russians can, um, are used to, you know, pivoting alliances 
uh, pretty pretty quickly. I think that it's a harder thing for do to do for for Western democracies, especially for the United States. That once once um, you know, the American public has you know, has a negative view of a country, it's it's not easy to turn things around. But it does it has happened. Uh, it has happened, so it, it could happen again. Uh, let's let's turn back to uh, the the specifics of the summit, uh, Andre. One of the things that uh, you mentioned and uh, was widely reported in the press was that uh, President Biden took up the question of the opposition within uh, Russia and the fate of uh, Mr. Navalny, who's uh, been in prison. He was on a hunger strike, uh, and frankly, has been out of the news um, in in the last month or so since the summit. Um, what, what's your read on the, uh, the reaction of, of Mr. Putin to uh, Biden's pushing of uh, threats to uh, add additional sanctions if there were uh, humanitarian violations or, or some uh, deterioration in the health of, of Navalny in prison? Uh, tell us uh, what, what you see happening with Navalny and the opposition. Well, again, uh, Biden is an experienced politician and uh, he knows very well that there would not be any reaction from Putin and uh, vice versa, that uh, mentioning Navalny's name guarantees that Putin will hold uh, Navalny in prison uh, as long as uh, he uh, deems necessary. But uh, Biden had to do it for internal political reasons, uh, well, at least say that he mentioned this issue. Navalny is the first opposition figure in uh, 20 years of Putin's rule who uh, represents a real threat to uh, the regime, uh, exactly because he is not uh, pro-Western liberal and therefore he, he can rely on a much wider public support. Uh, and because he comes uh, from a background not that far from uh, Putin's, he knows the internal workings of uh, all those structures. And therefore, uh, Navalny, who definitely has a charisma, who has uh, populist inclinations, he uh, would not be allowed to engage in political activity. So for now, he is in jail uh, while uh, there is a preparation for parliamentary elections in September. Uh, and my guess is he'll be held in jail uh, until the next presidential uh, elections, at least. He was kind of hinted that uh, he would be uh, left more or less alone if he stayed in the West. He didn't do it. He came back. He was immediately arrested. He knew what he was doing. And uh, it's a gamble on his part. And uh, the stake is his life. And, and the, uh, the authorities were going after his, uh, his organization. Uh, we haven't heard much more about that. Is, is it uh, because that they've been successful? Yes, the opposition? Uh, organization uh, kind of has created grassroots uh, structures. They worked with the youth very actively. And again, in 20 years, it's, it's the first and only uh, real opposition figure who could get uh, effective popular support. And therefore, the regime is extremely apprehensive about him. They uh, fear, uh, they feel the threat, they fear him, and uh, they act very brutally. He already has lost half of uh, his sight in one eye, 
because he was attacked uh, and, uh, well, he was poisoned. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't give much for his life, let me put it this way. Right, right. Could I just Mark, jump in here? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I just wanted to mention that, that there was, uh, you know, something from uh, uh, the audience from Tanya Gonzalez uh, asking about uh, the current events in Cuba and how this might affect you know, U.S.-Russia relations. And I think it's a good question because I think that for 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 someone like Putin, uh, anything like this, any manifestation like this, has the U.S. has to be behind it somehow. That it's not. In other words, he does. They don't see this as. Uh, you know, welling up from uh, from from the public uh, that it's somehow the U.S. is is behind it. And so I have a feeling that this will uh, you know, this will 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 put up uh, Putin's defenses, uh, in that uh, uh, this will not. In other words, this, this might put a chill on you know the 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 recent degree of of bonhomie that you know oh the Americans are still doing this you know even though it's not really us. Uh, and uh, uh, Mark, is... Mark, are you are you uh, applying your your Middle East uh, studies to uh, everything as an American conspiracy? Well, no, no. I think that this is. I don't think one has to even go as far as the Middle East. I think that certainly Vladimir Putin is. Uh, <laughs> he has certain proclivities in this regard himself. You remember, I think it was in uh, you know late 2011 that he really felt that. He said demonstrations in Russia against him uh, that was a signal from Hillary Clinton, and he appears to have really believed this that somehow Hillary Clinton can magically, you know, bring the crowds out onto the street as if you know, they they would never have done this without her signal or her say so. Uh, and uh, uh, now, it, to, you know, to what extent does he actually believe it, or does he does he simply say this because he knows that you know this is a way to discredit? The, the the internal opposition is to somehow tie it to foreign hands, uh, but it's, it's a consistent story with with Putin. He really right. does seem to worry about color revolutions. Now what's but, happening uh, now in Cuba, uh, I think, just feeds this fear that this is still going on. But even the paranoid have enemies. But let's uh, let's turn to one <laughs> other question at uh, at the summit, uh, Mark. Uh, cyber uh, crimes, cyber attacks. Uh, election interference, uh, and any uh, anything from the summit or afterwards, uh, the ransomware attacks continue. These are entities that are believed to be within the the, uh, the borders of, of the Russian Federation. And Biden, uh, in his press conference, was very forthright in that uh, he laid down uh, a marker that uh, this this would not be tolerated. Uh, what, what's your read on the uh, Putin and Biden in, in, the, in the cybersphere. Well, of course, you know the Russians argue that this is obviously, you know, uh, not the Russian government. That these are, you know, individual act, bad actors within, uh, in, maybe inside Russia. And I think, as Andre mentioned, that they feel that there have been attacks from the American side against Russia as well. Uh, that I have a sense that uh, this is one of the things that you know Biden can raise this issue, but I'm not sure what can or will be done. I actually was wondering, you know, I think there was some list Biden presented of some you know, 16 different uh, uh, types of targets that were off limits. And I hate to say it, but I think that, you know, that if the Russians have a list of 17 <laughs> through 100, they're like, oh, <laughs> these are okay. <laughs> In other words, that I think that that will be, there was those targets that are not 
were not on the list may well be <laughs> find themselves you know uh, tested if you will i'm not so sure it was such a good idea to to list these uh on the other hand i think it's uh, this is a real problem uh and you know i, I i'm not sure that um you know uh simply telling the Russians that this won't be tolerated. In other words, what, what's the practical response? In other words, are we going to increase sanctions? Well, I think we we've, we should have learned by now that we can increase sanctions uh, indefinitely. And this doesn't seem to change Russian behavior very much. So uh, in other words, it's not going to, this, this may or may not affect, probably won't affect, you know, the incidence of, uh, uh, these things, I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a problem that we have to solve uh, with our real partners about uh, you know just you know how do we how do we prevent how do we deter how do we uh, you know get back such attack. What I think was very interesting was that the uh, the attack against the well, the colonial pipeline here in the U.S. and you know, the other ransom was paid that. Um, you know, apparently the U.S. government was able to snatch back a fair amount of of this ransom, and which always I have to admit I've always thought that the supposed anonymity or secrecy of of Bitcoin transfers. I've always wondered if they really were, uh, and I have the sense that that they are not as uh, secure as those who engage in such transactions have been led to believe. Right. Well, I, I agree with you on the uh, the point about putting that in a red line. That just encourages somebody to walk up to the red line uh, as far as those 16 things that were, were off limits. Uh, Andre, we have a question from uh, Robert Kapanji. Uh, he asks about Russia's relations with Armenia and America's relations with Armenia. He's curious, is uh, Russia uh, an ally because Armenia was once part of Imperial Russia? Uh, does the U.S. consider Armenia is an ally because of the uh, this diaspora here. Uh, which which is a stronger relationship, or is it uh, not? Is, is it a moot point? Did uh, Russia support Armenia in the uh, recent war with Azerbaijan? What, do you have uh, any thoughts on Russia-Armenia relations? Well, uh, relationship with Russia is still more important for Armenia for a simple reason that they have a defense agreement and there are Russian troops in Armenia. Armenia depends on the Russian uh, arms supplies and Azerbaijan is uh, heavily relying on Turkey. Uh, and Erdogan, as we know, well, Turkey is a member of NATO, but Erdogan also plays his own game and, uh, uh, well, he supports Azerbaijan in, it's, uh, it has very important symbolic connotations among other things. Uh, what happened uh, during this uh, conflict, uh, the government of Armenia uh, that came as a result essentially of a, another color revolution, uh, well, took a more independent stance towards Russia and Putin could help Armenia, but he didn't help as much as he could. So he allowed Armenia to be defeated in the war, but not to be crushed in this war. And this uh, kind of has sent a very clear signal to uh, Armenian, uh, well, uh, current elite and to, to Pashinyan prime minister and to the elite in general that, uh, well, if you don't behave, we, uh, you might get uh, into a real trouble. Uh, the situation is such that uh, Armenia 
doesn't have uh, much flexibility. It's uh, a landlocked country uh, with very uh, poor natural base, uh, depending on nuclear power station uh, for the production of electricity that is uh, highly vulnerable. And in general, uh, Armenia will continue to be uh, Russian ally and will be in a kind of tragic position because it, it will be all the time uh, well, uh, an object of uh, games of uh, major powers. Uh, so even though Armenian diaspora in the US is huge and includes many uh, famous figures, uh, while in reality, uh, Armenian alliance uh, with Russia will continue the same way uh, Azerbaijan will uh, rely heavily on Turkey. Yeah, uh, you, you know, I, I once talked to uh, an American ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and, he, and I asked him about uh, having conversations at the time. Uh, U.S. Uh, Washington and Riyadh were at odds. Um, Mark, you've, you've uh, probably talked to Ambassador James Smith, but he, he told me that as a diplomat, you try to find common ground and, and you start on the issues where you can make some uh, some agreements, not, not the issues that divide you. Uh, let, let's look at the Russian-American relationship here. What, what issues could we come to agreement with? Uh, Andre mentioned uh, the, the nuclear uh, treaty, the New START uh, agreement and uh, proliferation uh, being a concern and we, we have uh, cooperation in space. What, what areas are Washington and Moscow likely to uh, cooperate on? Mark, do you wanna take, uh, take a shot at that? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, uh, obviously, the, you know, the New START agreement uh, was renewed. In other words, uh, it was due to expire February 5th. The uh, Trump administration was not keen on renewing it, uh, and yet it, it ended up being renewed. Uh, but I think that Trump had a point in the sense that he's like, well, you know, what about the, the Chinese? Obviously, their arsenal is growing, and it, you know that, you know, back in the old days uh, of the Cold War, it was the Soviet American arsenals were the two biggest ones, and so, you know, the others were so much smaller, and so what what counted was the Soviet American agreement. But, right. And now, of course, we have reports just recently that uh, the Chinese seem to be expanding their nuclear missile force. And so at some point, you know, Washington and Moscow uh, have to, you know, I don't think we can persuade the Chinese to join. They've made it pretty clear that they're not interested uh, unless and until they get up at the same level <laughs> as the U.S. and the Russians, which, of course, we don't want to see um, at all. But I think it'll be very difficult uh, to get the Russians, in other words, for, for the Russians, they, they're not in the business of pressuring uh, China on this. In other words, that, yeah, they don't want to see the Chinese nuclear arsenal expand, but rather let the Americans um, take the heat with the Chinese for this. And I'm not sure that we can. So, you know, the real question is, well, uh, if the Chinese arsenal is growing, what adjustments to Russia and the U.S. need to make? In other words, do they have to, you know, sort of call a halt to reductions? Do they actually have to think about increasing the arsenals? Uh, but because if and if we don't come to an agreement, obviously it'll be done unilaterally, uh, and the right. agreement might might end up suffering. So, um, but that's something that we need to 
to work on, it seems to me, that we have a few years now before the uh, new start, you know, really expires uh, uh, to work on this. You know, and other than that, I, I think that the, um, the Biden administration is relenting on Nord Stream 2. I actually think this was, was a good move. Uh, certainly, uh, this was an issue that was really aggravating our relationship with, with Germany. And so we're ameliorating it that. But also, I think what it shows the Russians is that we're not so totally, completely hostile toward them. Uh, and in fact, if, if we're seriously worried uh, that the Russians are getting uh, increasingly dependent on the Chinese uh, economically, uh, that in fact, it seems to it makes sense to like to give them some relief, in other words, to uh, you know let them let them profit from the relationship with Russia because uh, with, with Europe because if you don't then I think then you really push them toward dependence on China and that's not in our interest. So I think right. we'll we'll never get Putin to ally with us against China, but we don't have to push Russia into a position of of, of dependency with China either. Well, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I'm wondering about any other areas that uh, there might be cooperation. Uh, well, we have just a few more minutes and uh, we'll, uh, we'll get to uh, a couple of more questions here. Um, Andre, I'm, I'm curious, how would you assess, uh, how would you compare the relationship between Biden and Putin and Trump and Putin? Well, as I already mentioned, uh, Biden is a professional politician with a very uh, long uh, track and uh, um, the relationship between those two is predictable. Uh, relationship uh, with uh, Trump for anybody, including uh, Putin is totally unpredictable and emotional. And uh, uh, there was a change of mood towards uh, Trump during his time in office. First, there were hopes uh, on the Russian part. And then there came uh, disillusionment and uh, to some extent even a disguise, disguise when it was discussed, uh, when it was already becoming clear that uh, Trump, whether it was his fault or the total resistance by the elite, but he cannot fulfill his promises. He cannot really, uh, well, uh, get anything done. Everything was uh, uh, totally blocked. But the original premise of uh, uh, Trump's uh, uh, policy, the way, for example, Steve Bannon was formulating it yet in 2015, the idea that uh, the center of the world system is moving to, uh, into the North Pacific and China becomes the major opponent and let's play Russia against China the way Nixon played China against Russia. It was uh, welcomed in the Kremlin initially. Uh, the second issue that was very positively viewed by uh, the Kremlin was the emphasis on political realism. For Trump, it was power politics and ideology, morality, other issues like that, they were secondary or non-existent at all. Uh, right now, there is a general shift uh, uh, towards a uh, more balanced approach, typical for uh, Democrats uh, and Biden in general, always was a centrist in reality and Putin knew it very well. So uh, stylistically, a lot has changed, even though there was this initial uh, verbal attack on Putin. 
I don't think there is much love lost, but in general, uh, relations are becoming stable, including the personal level. So they're predictable, stable, and they follow more or less uh, well standard operating procedures. So uh, in regard to Trump, again, there was initial enthusiasm, there was hope, then they came disillusionment and to, what ex uh, to some extent even cynicism and anger. <coughs> in regard to Biden, vice versa, there were no illusions from the very start. Biden <clears throat> never was perceived as a friendly politician to Russia. <coughs> Excuse me, I remember when he became Obama's uh, vice president. <coughs> Uh, this news was not met positively in Russia. All right. Well, we're uh, we're close on time here. I'm going to take one more question from uh, the the audience here. We have a question from James Clark, and then I'll ask uh, each of you perhaps to uh, give a minute or two wrap up on uh, what we've been talking about the uh, Putin uh, Putin Biden uh, summit and U.S. Russia relations. James Clark asks about the current situation in Afghanistan. Excellent question. Uh, how does it affect uh, relations vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and the United States? And what are the effects uh, to both countries if Afghanistan fails? Uh, Mark, you want to you want to take that? Sure, I will. Uh, yes. Well, I think that uh, you know the the Russian uh, approach to Afghanistan um, that obviously you know uh, still is you know very negative. There's a lot memory. of history there. Yeah, of, of, of having to leave and the project failing. And I think that uh, after 9-11, you know, there was this bifurcated approach to there was that, that uh, the Russians didn't necessarily welcome them. But on the other hand, the Americans were there uh, fighting uh, a common enemy, you know, the, the Taliban and Islamic, uh, you know, jihadists in, in general. So, and, you know, and Putin was supportive uh, both after 9-11 and, you know, even later on, you know, with the Northern Distribution Network, uh, there was a, the U.S. able to, you know, send supplies into Afghanistan and avoid the more problematic Pakistani route. Uh, so I think the Russians, in fact, were pretty helpful. Now, of course, I think, you know, with the U.S. Uh, leaving on the one sense, you know, there's, there's sort of a certain degree of, of um, you know, like, uh, you know, this is happening to you uh, now that that would happen to us. On the other hand, I think the, the U.S. departure, um, in my view, that that the the regional powers are likely to be far more negatively affected than the United States. In other words, that if the Taliban, well, I think it's going to return to power, um, but depending on its behavior, it's going to be more of a problem for the immediate neighbors as it was before. People should remember that just as they played host to Al Qaeda during the 1990s, they also played host to the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which launched a couple of serious raids up into Central Asia you know, twice in 1999 and in 2000, and seemed to be getting ready to launch another one. And so the question is, you know, does this sort of thing continue? And I think what we've seen is, you know, Russia as well as China as well as Iran um, uh, have all been courting the Taliban. And you know, I think from the Russian point of view, there, you know, there is something worse. There is ISIS, 
uh, in Afghanistan. You know that that the, the Taliban, at least for now, is sort of indicating that its ambitions are limited to Afghanistan. And I think there's you know the Taliban's a pretty diverse movement, uh, but that there's a there there there's some possibility of working with it. But that that if if there's going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem for the neighbors, including Russia and Russia's allies in Central Asia. Well, terrific. Uh, this has been a great conversation, uh, gentlemen. Uh, we are very pleased that uh, you've been able to join us uh, this evening. And uh, let me turn the, the floor over to you, uh, Andre, if you have a minute or two of closing comments to share. Well, it's a very interesting moment because we see that uh, uh, US foreign policy really is uh, evolving under Biden. And uh, on the one hand, there is a return to the classical style. On the other hand, uh, uh, there are strategic changes that have been uh, upheld and uh, uh, will continue. Uh, I think, uh, as already mentioned, uh, uh, the uh, constantly present guerrilla in the room of uh, US-Russian negotiations is China and it will not go away. So same way as Afghanistan that uh, uh, Mark and you just discussed, uh, there are two issues here. On the one hand, the Islamist proliferation in Central Asia. On the other hand, quickly expanding uh, well, the influence of China in the region as well. And uh, here, uh, US and Russian interests to some extent overlap. The same happens in the Arctic right now. There is increasing competition and there is uh, a, a new player showing up um, that doesn't even have formally, uh, well, claim to the northern uh, uh, oceans coastal area. And that's the new reality we'll be living in. So um, new technological reality related to hacker attacks, but also to uh, lots of other things and the uh, changing uh, geopolitics and balance of power. That will increasingly influence uh, the uh, US-Russian relations. Uh, well, uh, we'll see how long Putin will be present. So he's dealt with uh, Bill Clinton as prime minister, then Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Uh, my guess is he will still deal with the next US president. Uh, at well, least I think one. he uh, does. Doesn't he have uh, the, the path clear to uh, 2036? Uh, well, he has, but what's going on uh, is very hard to say. Something is happening over there in this regard. There are at least discussions of uh, potential successor within the group, uh, but it, it is quite possible that after looking at various candidates, the uh, elite bloc that is dominated by the security people uh, will decide that the best solution is not to change anything. We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, Andre, we'll have to have you back to get into more detail about uh, Putin's horoscope um, and, and where things lie ahead. Uh, Mark, any uh, comments that you'd like to make at the end here? Yeah, I'm actually uh, a little more hopeful about uh, Russian-American relations. I, I really think that, uh, um, you know, Russian hopes about Trump were really dashed 
uh, he was just so, uh, you know, unknowledgeable about international relations. Certainly John Bolton's memoir you know, talks about this virtually every page. John Bolton is railing about how little Trump actually understood international relations. Uh, you know, and so I think that, you know, for, for Putin, he appreciates someone like Biden who has a pretty thorough knowledge of them and whose expectations are realistic that Biden has talked about, you know, pursuing a, a values-based foreign policy, but, you know, he's not doing, you know, either with George W. Bush, you know, sort of regime change and not pursuing the you know, very high-minded, you know, Obama policy. I think that that uh, there's a more pragmatic relationship, and in a certain sense, the the Biden focus on China, in one sense, is 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 good for Russia because to the extent that we're focusing on China as our main adversary, that means by definition we're not focusing on Russia quite as much, uh, which gives them a little more, uh, I think, freedom of maneuver and and possibly you know uh, a balancing role. Uh, certainly, I was on some Zoom conference uh, in Shanghai. High and the Russian participant was actually kind of kind of shocked. Suggested that that, that you know if the Chinese American hostility is the main uh, feature of international relations in the future, then you know Russia can lead sort of a third block in between. Uh, I'm sure something that they didn't want to hear. But but what I what what struck me was that this, in other words, he didn't. Uh, see Russia's fate as being tied to to China. In other words, that there's some some role some some uh, uh, role for Russia to play between the two, and uh, that might you know at some point you know we're, we're never going to get them to ally against China, but uh, you know pragmatic uh, working with them on certain occasions might be possible uh, in my view. Well, it's uh, always good to end on an optimistic note, although I think uh, there was enough in there to uh, suspect confrontation lies ahead as well. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, thank you uh, to our guests uh, this evening. Uh, again, we've been uh, talking with uh, Dr. Andrei Korobkov, uh, Professor Director of Russian Studies in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, Middle Tennessee State University down the road here in uh, Murfreesboro. Um, and Dr. Mark Katz, professor in the Shore School of Policy and Government at George Mason University in uh, Northern Virginia. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us this evening. And thank you to our sponsors, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, International Business Council, and the Center for International Business at beautiful Belmont University. Uh, thank you all, and we look forward to uh, seeing you back at uh, Global Dialogue for another conversation. Thank you. <laughs>